All right, Acts chapter 12, as we move along, beginning in verse 1, let's read through this together and see what the Lord has for us here today. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals, and so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. 
and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Lord, please add your blessing to the reading of your word, and may we be encouraged and spoken to and ministered to and learn and grow and be open to the things of your word, the things of your spirit that you have to speak to us this morning. Lord, I think of the letters you wrote to those seven churches in the book of Revelation. And they each ended with that phrase, to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we hear what the Spirit speaks to our church here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've been going through this here, chapter 10, chapter 9 was Saul's conversion. Chapter 10, of course, Peter up on the rooftop, the Lord speaking to him about going to the Gentiles, speaking to him three times in a vision there in the middle of the day, taking him up to Cornelius's house, speaking to them, giving them the word of God, preaching the gospel. They believed, they were so ripe, they were already ready to receive the word of God. The spirit of God fell upon them and they had what we refer to as the Gentile Pentecost. And then we saw in chapter 11 last week as Peter was sort of called into account before uh, the, fo- the folks in the Jewish church and he had to explain it all to them. And then Barnabas and Saul made their way to Antioch and we see that Antioch became sort of now the center of the Gentile church, of the, the center of the operations of Christianity as the, the gospel's now going from the church in Antioch there on the northern coast uh, up in Syria, now going out to the rest of the world, to Europe. And we saw there in chapter 11, verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed. And so God has been working, God has been moving. In Acts chapter 10, we're uh, 10 or so years beyond the cross. And now we find in chapter 12, that Herod, as we just sort of continue to look at the story of the unfolding of the church and the way the Spirit of God is working, in verse 1 of chapter 12, we find here that about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now this Herod the king was Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great, who ruled in the days of Jesus' birth. So Herod the Great is the one you remember who had all the male children under the age of two slaughtered. He had uh, several sons. There was another son um, who was a nephew who had a role in the trial of Jesus, that Herod. And he was also the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. And then this is uh, yet another Herod and the successions of Herods, you know, uh, we understand this, right? People name their son, you you know, whatever the name is, you know, in my wife's family, it's Louis, then Louis the first, Louis the second, Louis the third, Louis the fourth, and all that. And so we, we understand that, and that's what happened here, except in these cases, the name Herod was associated with terror, with a harsh rule, with a heavy hand. And we see here that this Herod, it was no different, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, uh, he stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. The unique thing about this Herod is that he was part Jewish. And so he ingratiated himself to the Jews by honoring their feasts and their holidays. And so it was sort of really a way of politically manipulating the people that he was ruling over. 
And so at this point, since the, uh, the core of the Jewish people were against the church, he sort of joined with them to, to help them accomplish their purposes, which in this case was to harass the church. And so he did that, and he did that uh, freely and willingly. And notice it says here in verse 2, it says, Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And this indicates to us that he had him beheaded. And you say, why? Why did he do that? We're not told why. He just did it. This James, so that we can keep ourselves straight, uh, the brother of John, this was of the inner circle of the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Uh, Remember, James and John were brothers. They were called sons of thunder by Jesus or Boangeres in Mark 3.17. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom Jesus gave the name Boangeres, that is, sons of thunder. This is when Jesus was calling the disciples. So this James is the James, the brother of John, the apostle. Interesting, as we think about this, Uh, Although Stephen had died as a martyr, Stephen was not an apostle. Uh, James here, the brother of John, is the first one of the apostles to be martyred. It's also interesting that John became the last of the apostles to die. So you wonder why did God sort of choose these two brothers as sort of the bookends of the, the work of the apostles in terms of their death, but that is the way it happened. And Jesus, of course, spoke to them many times that persecution would come and that they would be killed, uh, even for his name. In Matthew chapter 10, uh, we are told that uh, Jesus speaking to them, Beware of them, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about... uh, what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And so they were to trust in God when they were brought before these situations. You may also remember the story back in Matthew 20, where their mother Mary brought them to Jesus and uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said, what do you wish? And she said, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said, oh yes, Lord, we are able So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. James tasted of what he said he could handle Uh, through no fault of his own, of course. He was delivered up to Herod and Herod struck him down. He beheaded him. Verse three now Because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread, which as we read on a little further, we find out, and and we know this, that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is connected to the Feast of the Passover. So as he uh, saw that he had success in, in the eyes of the Jews and having James struck down, he was going to capitalize on that success. And the favor that he enjoyed from the Jews who were following him, 
by taking Peter because Peter at that time was pretty much the known leader of what was going on. And he thought, well, I got this other guy. Uh, It's time to get the leader. And so he was taking Peter. He arrested him and put him in prison during the days of unleavened bread, the Passover. So this whole feast week, we know because we just studied this in the Gospel of Matthew, is a period of about seven days or eight days for these feasts to take place. So where exactly in the scheme of things he arrested Peter and put him in jail, we don't know, but it was likely at the beginning because those days were sacred and they uh, had laws and rules that you don't do these things during the feasts. And so verse four, when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers. So it was four squads of four each to keep him intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Now, Peter had a bit of a reputation. Remember back in Acts chapter 5, Peter and John had been delivered to prison for preaching in the name of Jesus, but of course they got delivered, they got released. And so this time, he's going to make sure. You see, these four squads of four each were uh, elite soldiers. Uh, They were probably guys who would be graduating to what we would know as the, the SEALs or the Green Berets or that kind of a thing. Uh, So these were elite forces, and so he didn't take any chances with Peter this time. Uh, They had uh, three or four-hour shifts, and the the band of four would go in. Two would stand outside the gate of the the cell itself, and then Peter was chained between the two, uh, one on his right, one on his left. And so he really was going to make sure that Peter couldn't go anywhere. And Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to him, excuse me, to God for him by the church. Jesus told Peter in John 21, most assuredly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This Jesus spoke, signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this to him, he said, follow me. So it was James's time to die, but not Peter's. Because what Jesus said to Peter was that you'll become an old man. He didn't say at what age he would die. But certainly at this point in his life, his ministry was not over. And just like they learned so many times in being with Jesus, that when Jesus spoke a word to them, such as get into the boat and go to the other side, that Jesus meant that and that they would make it. And certainly as he spoke to Peter there in John 21, uh, Peter hopefully had this in his mind, whether he did or not, we don't know. But he was in prison and we're told here this, this really interesting and excellent truth that constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. So let's not forget, let's be reminded this morning of the importance of prayer. As we read on in the story, we find out that God listened to and that God answered these prayers. Peter was in prison. The church was praying. They're grieving the death of James. When every other gate is shut and door is locked, the gate to heaven is wide open. The gate to heaven is always wide open to us. Prayer is what opens that gate. 
This idea of constant prayer has the idea of stretching out as far as you can for something or stretching a muscle to its limit. So when it says that they were praying with constant prayer, this was a fervent prayer. This was an agonizing prayer. And they were meeting around the clock praying for Peter. What they were praying, we don't know. They were probably praying for his release. They were praying for God's will to be done in this situation. And I'm reminded of a a scripture in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, which says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. And this is so often the case, isn't it? When we have these urgent situations, there are a few faithful who will pray, but the the church here, it says the church in Jerusalem was making constant prayer for him. And so this is just an, an encouragement as well as an exhortation to us that when we become aware of these situations, like what happened in Texas this week, that we should be praying. You know, we should not fall prey to the fact that, hey, it didn't happen to me. I don't know anybody that it happened to, and it was down there and not up here. You know, it was a thousand miles away. Why should I care? Because God cares. Because tragedy came to these people's lives. And you know what? It could, it could happen to us. And so we need to pray. And these people were praying on behalf of what was happening in Peter's life. And no doubt the church was undergoing persecution as we've already seen. Going back to chapter 7 with Stephen. And then in chapter 8, Philip getting scattered because of the persecution. And then we're seeing you know, the gospel going to Samaria and the gospel going out to, um, to the coast, to Tyre, to Sidon, to um, Cornelius' house. And it's all being spread because of persecution. And so the church is now experiencing persecution and the gospel is being spread because of persecution. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that these early church believers were experiencing storms in their life. You remember back in Matthew 8 and Mark 6, the disciples were in two different storms, both of them because they followed and obeyed Jesus. In one storm, they were in the boat with Jesus crossing the sea. And remember, the storm came up. Jesus was asleep. And they woke him up and cried out to him and said, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? And he stood up and he spoke and he calmed the sea using the same language and tone that he used when he rebuked demons and telling them to come out of people. And he turned and said to them, at, 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 right after that happened, he turned and said, oh, you have little faith. And then in the other situation, Jesus had sent the disciples ahead. And he said, go ahead, I'll meet you on the other side. And remember that night, they were in the boat, a storm came up, and Jesus was walking across the sea. And then Peter saw him and he said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out onto the water. And he did. And remember, as Peter began to sink, as he, and we're told there in the text, he began to look at the raging sea around him. Jesus grabbed him by the hand and helped him as he cried out, and he simply said that two-word prayer, help me. The church was going through storms, and just to remind you, there are storms of instruction, storms of correction, and storms of perfection. And for us, we are usually either going into a storm, we're in a storm, we're coming out of a storm, we're getting ready to go back into another storm. 
But you see, that's okay because God is with us. That's why we sang these songs this morning, to remind us that God is with us just as he was here in this storm with his people. Verse 6, and when Herod was about to bring him out, so we're coming toward the end of the time of the feast. Herod was about to bring him out, and that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. So here we are, last night, right, right before he's going to be put to death. He knows what's going to happen. And behold, verse 7, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off of his hands. So you have four elite soldiers, two outside the gate, two inside chained, one to his left and one to his right. Peter's sandals were over here, his coat was over there, his outer garment. The angel comes in, flips the light on, this angelic light, And he struck Peter on the side, and the idea there is he gave him quite a blow to wake him up. I remember my son, when we had to wake him up for school in the morning, it was at least three go-rounds, maybe four, and occasionally, I will confess now that he's older and he's 35 now, so you can't put me in jail for this, I often had to pull the covers off of his bed, grab him by the ankle, and drag him off the bed onto the floor to get him to get up to go to school. That was quite often what we had to do because he didn't get up. Well, here he struck Peter on the side. Quite the blow. Hey, wake up. And as he did that, isn't it amazing that the providence of God, the power of God in sending this angel, these guys don't even wake up, these four soldiers. They're asleep. They're not supposed to be asleep. They're supposed to be awake. But God in his providence, had these guys asleep, and he goes in, turns the light on, wakes up Peter, speaks to him. So obviously, he's speaking to him in in a, a voice that he's rousing Peter to get up. His chains fell off of his hands. I had to make a noise. Then the angel said to him, verse 8, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. And so he, Peter, went out and followed him, the angel, and he did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. That's understandable. Peter had already experienced visions. The Lord had spoken to him before. You can kind of see how he he thought he was having a dream. But when they were past the first and the second guard posts, and we believe that this was in the Antonio Fortress near the Temple Mount area, so this is a heavily guarded area. It's, it's teeming with Roman soldiers. And yet the angel, as he wakes Peter up and leads him out, he leads him past the first and the second guard posts, and they came to the iron gate that leads to the city. And we understand historically this was a very large iron gate. Notice it says here, which opened to them of its own accord. The word used there for how it opened is the word that we get our word automate from. So as they approach the gate, what happened is it automatically opened. So picture yourself going into Walmart or some store that has automatic doors that open for you. That's what happened in this situation. 
They came to the iron gate, it opened to them of its own accord, and they went out and went down a street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Now, even if Peter was plotting how he might get out and thinking in his mind, I've got to go here and go there and turn this, I've got to get past this guard and all of that, and then even if I do that, there's the iron gate. How would, how would that happen? One commentator put it this way, many of us worry about the iron gate before we ever get to it. A month beforehand, we are anxious about the iron gate, but God will take care of it when we come to it. For Peter, it opened of its own accord, and that phrase uses the ancient Greek word automate. One could say that the gates open automatically for Peter. F.F. Bruce relates the story of a Christian called Sundar Singh, a Tibetan Christian, who was likewise freed miraculously from a prison. For preaching the gospel, he was thrown into a well, and a cover was set over it and securely locked. He would be left in the well until he died. And he could see the bones and the rotting corpses of those who had already perished in that well. On the third night of his imprisonment, he heard someone unlocking the cover of the well and removing it. A voice told him to take hold of the rope that was being lowered. Sundar was grateful that the rope had a loop in it that he could put his foot in because he had injured his arm in the fall down into the well. He was raised up, the cover was replaced and locked, but when he looked to thank his rescuer, he could find no one. When morning came, he went back to the same place he was arrested and started preaching again. News of the preaching came to the official who had him arrested, and Sundar was brought before him again. When the official said someone must have gotten the key and released him, they searched for the key and found it on the official's own belt. So a modern-day reenactment by the Spirit of God for this brother in Christ. These are things that only God can do, right? And if we ask Him and we seek Him, you see, God still answers prayer. He still works miracles. So verse 11, And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So it's at this point we can ask the question now as we're looking at this situation with James, who was martyred, and Peter, who was rescued. Why was James allowed to die? Why was Peter rescued and allowed to live? After all, Both were dedicated servants of God. They were needed by the church. The only answer is the sovereign will of God, the providence of God. For the very thing Peter and the church had prayed about um, after their second persecution had come true, God had delivered them. God had given them boldness, and they spoke. Herod had, quote, stretched forth his hand to destroy the church, but God would stretch forth his hand to perform signs and wonders and to glorify his son. God allowed Herod to kill James, but he kept him from harming Peter. It was the throne in heaven that was in control, not the throne on earth. We need to learn these things, don't we? Why did God allow a flood to happen here? 
He did. You see, it's good to know that no matter how difficult the trials or how disappointing the news, God is still on the throne and God has everything under control. We may not always understand his ways, but we do know his sovereign will is what's best in the end. Another commentator said this, we need to learn that with God there are no secondary causes. Let me say that again. With God, there are no secondary causes. God is rarely early, according to our timeline. He's never late. And he's always right on time, according to his plan. God is rarely early, never late, and always right on time, according to his plan. You see, God has a plan. We are told in the book of Revelation that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You see, God knows the beginning from the end. God understands purposes and plans. And we've already been talking about this, haven't we? When we looked at in Acts chapter 10, uh, God was speaking and revealing himself to Cornelius. And at the same time, God was speaking and revealing himself to Peter. They were separated by 30 miles and Peter in a Jewish house and Cornelius in a Gentile house. Cornelius sends the men down, and as God is allowing these men to come, he's finishing up the vision with Peter, and while Peter is pondering these things, the Spirit spoke to him and said, hey, there's some guys down at the front door. I want you to go with them. And remember what it said? Questioning nothing. So God is always at work. God has his plan, and he is the one who's working on the divine chessboard that we cannot see or understand. And it says there in this verse that we're looking at, uh, in verse 11, Peter said, now as he's come to himself, I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel, and it wasn't a dream, and he has delivered me from the hand of Herod. So that word delivered there means a number of things. It means rescue, but it also means to pluck. So think about it. God plucked Peter out of that jail on the last night of the last hour before he was to be executed, after the feast was over, God rescued him. God delivered him. Let's remember this about prayer. I want to read this to you. You probably know it. It's out of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is why we need to pray. This is why this passage that I'm reading from in Ephesians 6 is known as the armor of God passage. In fact, as you read, um, after he talks about the helmet of salvation uh, and the sword of the spirit, he doesn't specifically say that prayer is a weapon, but he says, and praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. You see, we are to be praying. We are to be seeking the Lord and we are to understand that while we're praying and what we're praying about has implications that go on in the spiritual realm that we don't see or we don't understand. So God had his method. God had his way. And he allowed James, for whatever purpose, to pass from this life, to be taken, to die a brutal death. 
but he chose to deliver Peter. When he had considered this, verse 12, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So this is the John Mark that we're going to see in the next chapter uh, being taken with uh, Peter, excuse me, with uh, Paul and um, Barnabas as they go out and they serve the Lord. This John Mark, his house apparently is a house where many have gathered together, not only on this occasion, but on many occasions. And what are they doing? They are praying, they are seeking the Lord. Now sometimes, and I understand this quite well, as I'm sure we all do, that when we pray, sometimes we just don't have faith to believe that God cares or that God wants to answer prayer. George Mueller, if you don't know who he is, you should get his biography. He wrote, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of God's willingness. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of God's willingness because you see the purpose of prayer is not to get our will done, but it's to get his will done. Does that mean we shouldn't pray about our stuff? Of course not. We're told to pray, to bring all of our requests before the Lord. But let's understand as we keep these things in balance and tension, uh, our prayers should not solely consist of our own personal needs. Our prayers should be outward focused, praying for the salvation of others, praying for these things that are happening in our world and in our society that are tragic, and that aside from an intervention or a move of God, nothing will change. In Matthew 6, you may remember there in the middle of the Beatitudes, Jesus taught his disciples to pray and he said, therefore do not be like them, meaning the hypocrites. He says, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore pray, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, listen, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer that God's will would be done. So Peter comes to this gate and he knocks at the door of the gate and a girl named Rhoda came to answer. Rhoda means rose. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she got so excited she didn't open the gate, but she ran back in and announced that Peter was outside. Well, it's reasonable to assume if Peter's outside, why didn't you let him in? So they're assuming she's just hallucinating. You're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, well, it must be his angel. And there was a Jewish superstition that believed in guardian angels. And let me tell you this morning, if you believe in that, it's a fallacy. There are no guardian angels. Sorry to burst your bubble, but it's true. So they said it it must be his, his angel. Well, if it was an angel, given what we know so far, why would an angel be knocking? The angel went into the prison to let Peter out. The angel seems to be able to get around pretty easily, right? Uh, Angels appearing to Cornelius in one place, Peter in another. Angels appearing to Mary, the mother of Jesus, appearing to Elizabeth, the mother of John. They just came and ministered. They don't need to knock on a door. So Peter continued knocking, verse 16, and when they opened the door, finally, they saw him 
and they were astonished. So it's interesting, God got Peter out of prison, but Peter couldn't get into the prayer meeting. And no matter how grim and perplexing our situation is, God and his angels are present to minister to us. He can deliver anytime, anywhere, any place. If we ever think God does not understand or cannot or will not help, we have bad theology. God does care. And he will answer and he will deliver. Don't give up hope. Keep praying. Especially for those people who don't know the Lord whom you love. Don't stop. Verse 12, but motioning, 17, excuse me, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. This James is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the one who authored the epistle of James. So he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Now at this point with verse 17, except for a brief mention in Acts 15 and later in Galatians chapter 2, this is pretty much the last we hear of Peter until he writes his epistle. The rest of the book of Acts from This point from chapter 13 forward is really now about the ministry of Paul, the apostle. So we sort of see Peter fade from the scene, and that's only because of the Holy Spirit directing Luke to focus on this other ministry. It's not because Peter's ministry was less significant. And as soon as it was day, verse 18, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. You can understand that, of course, because... If a soldier lost a prisoner, immediately that person's sentence was carried out upon the soldier. It was a grievous thing for a prisoner to escape. Now, Peter, years later in his epistle, in 1 Peter chapter 3, listen to this. He says, for the eyes of the Lord, 1 Peter three twelve, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So now we come to verse 20. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So we kind of, he redirects his anger now. He lost Peter again, and he's very upset about that, but he's also upset with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So you have a situation here where the people of Tyre and Sidon are now becoming lobbyists. They've become friends with Blastus, the king's personal aid, and now they're asking for personal favors. They're asking for political favors. They're asking for peace. 
because ultimately their issue was the king's country was supplying them with food. So they don't really care about the evil of the king. They really just care about not cutting off the food supply. So in verse 21, on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. In other words, he gave a speech. And the people kept shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Sometimes you read these things and you're like, really? That's crazy. So on this day that Herod did this, the Jewish historian Josephus writes to us and gives us an account that says he put on a garment made holy of silver and of a context, a contexture truly wonderful. And he came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent <clears throat> as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and one from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. A severe pain arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. So that was Josephus's account. The Holy Spirit's account is the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. So in that moment, what we understand between verse 22 and 23 as the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man is that he, he received that praise. And he began to think of himself in that moment as deity. Not a stretch when you understand how the Roman Caesars uh, demanded to be worshipped. You see, this was the embodiment of idolatry, wasn't it? crying out, declaring that this man was a God. And this one commentator said exactly what I was thinking as I read this. He says, I cannot help but see in King Herod an illustration of the future man of sin who will one day rule the world and persecute God's people. Second Thessalonians 2 speaks of the Antichrist, Revelation 13. This man of sin or Antichrist will make himself God and will command the worship of the whole world, but Jesus Christ will return and judge him and those who follow him. So in this moment, as this King Herod was puffed up within himself, and these people were declaring these praises, and as he received them, God said, I am not going to share my glory with another. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. He also said in Isaiah 48, 11, um, for how should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. And so God exacted his judgment upon Herod in that moment. And so Herod died. Herod had James killed. Herod had Peter put in prison, but an angel, a divine act of God, delivered Peter from the hand of Herod. He plucked Peter out of the despair and out of the, the dungeon. And here now God has judged Herod and put him to death. 
Notice what it says in verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. I love these little progress reports that the Holy Spirit gives us on what he's doing within the church. In fact, let's look at some of those just to be encouraged this morning, going all the way back to Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. That's a pretty good progress report, isn't it, of the work of God? Later in Acts chapter 5, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to, sh- to suffer shame for his name, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Pretty good progress report. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, Then the word of God spread. This was after the, disciple, the, uh, the deacons were appointed. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Pretty good progress report, right? Acts chapter 8, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them, and there was great joy in that city. Pretty decent progress report. Acts chapter 9, after the conversion of Saul. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, and they were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. That's all right. It's pretty good. Acts chapter 16, we're going to come to this later. So Acts 16, 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Pretty good. Acts 19, after the Lord's mighty working in Ephesus where the gospel was preached and and all these Ephesians believed in Jesus and they began to burn their books of magic spells and incantations. It says there in Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. God working in a pagan culture who hated him, Temple of Diana, all of that, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And then we find again at the end of the book, at the end of Acts 28 and verses 30 and 31, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house. This is while he's there under house arrest in in Rome. And he received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Paul's right outside of Caesar's household. Has a house church going. Everybody's coming in and he's just preaching and teaching and praying and laying hands on people and doing all these things and sending out people freely with no one forbidding him. These are the progress reports we get from the Holy Spirit here in verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. We need to pray for this. We need to pray that these progress reports would be something that we can see and witness here and now in this day, in this time, in this age. Don't you want to see these things? I certainly do. 
So let's pray. Next week, verse 25 sort of transitions into chapter 13, but let's read it. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So Barnabas and Saul were likely not only in Jerusalem, but probably even in that prayer meeting when Peter came and knocked on the door. You remember Barnabas and Saul had been sent with an offering after Agabus the prophet had prophesied there was a famine coming. And so they had taken up a collection and gone to help this sister church just as has been offered to us so graciously. And when they had fulfilled their ministry and they had delivered that and told what Agabus had said and no doubt said, you know, hey, this is an offering. You guys need to store this up for when the days of famine come. You know, thinking back to the days of Joseph when the Lord had put him in a place and gave him great wisdom as these dreams came to the Pharaoh. And he said, you know, in seeing those cows, those emaciated cows and whatnot in his vision, how God had said, we need to save for seven years and get ready for this famine. And so Barnabas and Saul in like manner had taken this gift to Jerusalem. They fulfilled their, their ministry, but now they took with them John Mark, the one who had been at that house there. So I, I believe it's very likely that Barnabas and Saul and John Mark were all a part of that prayer meeting and they saw and experienced what happened with Peter. Aren't these amazing stories? that we're reading about what God did and how he grew the church, that even through death, growth can prosper? Why did God allow James to be taken and for Peter to go on? I I don't know. I imagine we might find out in heaven. And so when we have our own questions, you know, we, we have questions of our own before the Lord, all of us. Lord, not that we're complaining, why did you give Rebecca to us? Why did you allow this to happen in my family? Why did you allow that to happen over there? Why do I have this disease or affliction? Why did this thing happen? My kids, when they were little, they always used to ask me all of these questions. A lot of why questions. And I would say this to them and it frustrated them, although I did not do this to frustrate them. I would say, I don't know why, but I know who. And that has to be good enough, doesn't it? Who is God? The why is his divine providence. It's his, his divine will. It's the sovereign act of God so often in our lives. And so what do we do when these things happen? We pray. We seek the Lord. We Try to continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be ye being filled, we're told in Ephesians 5. And keep doing that. Don't give up hope. Keep going. And when things become dark and, and we have these, these things that happen in our lives that we don't understand and they're painful and they hurt and we can't explain, what do we do? We cry out to God. And, and in fact, this afternoon, as I speak to the Korean church, the passage I had prayed about um, is in 2 Corinthians 12, and we'll end with this. It's a familiar passage. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. 
Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. God's not often going to tell us why, but he is going to tell us who, and it's him. It's his grace that's sufficient for us. So as we close today, is his grace enough for you? Is his presence enough for you? Do you trust in the God of heaven to the degree that when something happens, we don't have to know the answer, that we can just look to him and know that he is the answer? Lord Jesus, thank you this morning for your word for speaking to us, for ministering to us. God, we're so grateful. And God, may you be enough. May we have the faith to trust in your sovereign and divine providence in our lives. Lord, that doesn't mean that we just look at what you do as, uh, from a fatalistic point of view because you have a plan. Fatalism just says there's no reason. It just says there's no hope and there's just this philosophical view that you are dead and all things happen mystically in the universe somehow. But God, that's not true. You are in charge of all things. You created the universe. You created all of us as people and our lives are in your hands. You tell us in Psalm 90, uh, if, if by strength 70 years or 80, you know, teach us to present to you a heart of wisdom. Lord, every day, every breath is a gift from you. Let us spend our time on this earth looking to heaven and honoring you, Lord Jesus. And knowing that whatever we do in word or deed, let it all be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures tell us. May that become embroidered upon our hearts. May we have that perspective. May we see through the lens of what you have told us in your word. And not listen to the talking heads on TV or just look at it with human eyes. But to understand that you are always on your throne. You are always in control. I think of that incredible scripture in the book of Proverbs. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whichever way he wishes. God, you are in control. So this morning, Lord, if there are any here who have never trusted in the name of Jesus for salvation. May this become their moment. And I encourage you right now just to cry out to Jesus and ask him to forgive you of your sins. And he said that he would. In fact, that's why he died on the cross. So that everyone who comes to him might be brought to the Father and have a relationship with God Almighty. An amazing thing, but it's true and it's real. And so God is... That person or those people are crying out to you right now. Just reveal yourself to them. Lord, I know as we pray that there are so many hearts here who have people that we are praying for who do not know you, friends and family, relatives. God, we mention their name to you right now and we cry out and we say, God, please be gracious and merciful. God, please bring salvation to them. 
And more importantly, we pray that they would humble themselves and bend their knee and return. So Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your hand in our lives. Thank you that we are never left to ourselves. Thank you that just as you delivered and plucked Peter out of the hand of Herod, so you do so often in our lives. We love you, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.